Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 25 today as we continue to walk through the book of Exodus together. If you've been with us, you know that we've now come to the point in Exodus where God will introduce uh, ten plagues to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Uh, this will be in part uh, for God to deliver His people, but this also will be to show Pharaoh and the Egyptians once and for all who the one true God is. Uh, if you were with us last Lord's Day, we looked at that contrast in Exodus 7 between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. And how Moses and Aaron were two who obeyed God, they served Him in obedience. And in Pharaoh, you had one who opposed God. And we talked in that message about the decision we all have. Will we obey God or will we oppose God? And if we will oppose God like Pharaoh, then we too will face God's judgment. And we will see that judgment as it unfolds here in Exodus chapter 7. And so we're going to begin, as I mentioned already, in verse 14 there and read through verse 25. Uh, if you are able to, out of reverence for God's Word, if you would stand as I read the text for us this Lord's Day. And this is what God's Holy Word says to us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far... You have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. If you would pray with me, church. Father God, we thank You for this Word. And yet in it today contains the account of something that can seem a bit strange and unusual to us. An entire river turning to blood. And You using that to bring warning and judgment to a nation. And in that, Lord, we gather today to better understand You, Your Word, and to better understand the Gospel. So Father, help us to see the Gospel in this text today and to understand how we are called to respond to it, especially as we prepare 
to come to the Lord's table together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For some of you, you may have spent some time this weekend watching uh, the opening ceremony of the Olympics or maybe even some of the Olympic festivities and events themselves. You probably know that the Olympics have quite a history, that they go back to uh, the ancient Olympics that took place there in Olympia, Greece. But what you may not know is that those ancient Olympics that took place in 8th century B.C. actually had very little to do with sport. Those ancient Olympics took place primarily as a male religious festival to worship the Greek god Zeus. People would gather there, specifically men would gather there, at Olympia. That was named after Mount Olympus, which was believed to house the throne of Zeus himself. And they would gather there for all types of religious festivities. They would gather there to make sacrifices. And along the time as that developed, they would gather there to worship at the temple of Zeus. Now, within the temple of Zeus, you had one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was the throne of Zeus. The throne of Zeus was about 40 feet high, and it was encased in ivory and in gold. And in its day, it was a sight to behold. And in fact, we can read from ancient history what people said when they saw it and why they went to it. Roman Stoic philosopher Epictetus said this, You journey to Olympia to gaze on the statue of Zeus. And every one of you would think it a great misfortune to die having never seen it. And so, uh, those people in ancient Greece believed that every four years, that was a major accomplishment to gather there, not so much for sport or game, but just to gaze on this statue, to gaze on this temple. In fact, when you go back historically and look at it, the first Olympics consisted of only one actual sporting event. It was a 200-yard foot race. But when you compare those ancient Olympics to the Olympics today, they look quite differently, don't they? Uh, Today, everything is about the sport, everything is about the athlete, and you won't hear much mention of Zeus worship. That's because as the years went on and the centuries went on, uh, Zeus became long forgotten, at least he was not worshipped. He was only mentioned in mythology. In fact, historically, when we look back, it was somewhere around the 5th century A.D. that that temple came to ruins, that that throne of Zeus came to ruins. And now today, while you can go and see the ruins of the temple, uh, there is nothing to be found from that giant 40-foot statue. Somewhere along the way, uh, it was completely destroyed and laid in ruins. It's important for us to consider historical things like this because what we see in history is kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall. Kings will rise and kings will fall. False gods will rise and false gods will fall. And just like the Zeus of old, we see this historically even as we study ancient Egypt. Because in ancient Egypt you have one who was in many ways the Zeus of his day. Pharaoh was believed to be a god. He demanded to be worshipped as a god. There were statues, there were temples, all built in the name of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was worshipped and seen as a god, but as we will see in this text and in the coming chapters, God has a way of dealing with those who exalt themselves. 
And God is a jealous God. And He demands that we worship Him as the one true Creator. And those who believe themselves to be God, these imposters, He will deal with them. And we will see very clearly how He will deal with this one Pharaoh and with the Egyptians and with their false gods they worshipped through these ten plagues. And so today as we look at this first plague, I, I want us to consider that very thing. How is it God is going to deal with Pharaoh? How is He going to deal with the Egyptians? And how is He going to deal with these false gods that the Egyptians worshipped? And then how do these things connect us to the Gospel? And how do these things connect us to the Lord's table that we'll be gathering around at the end of our time today? That's what we're going to look at as we walk through this text, beginning with that first reminder for you in your outline there. The Lord humbles those who exalt themselves. The Lord humbles those who exalt themselves. We see this point very clearly as we study through the plagues, especially this first plague. You have one who has exalted himself in Pharaoh. You have one who believes himself to be God in Pharaoh. And yet God is going to deal with him and is going to humble him through bringing these plagues among his land. In fact, in many ways we see that that God is already dealing with Pharaoh, pronouncing judgment on Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh believed himself to be God. And when Pharaoh is confronted by Moses and Aaron who come in the name of the one true God, Pharaoh's response is, well, who is the Lord? Who, Who is this God? Well, God is going to answer that question very clearly to Pharaoh through these plagues. We read about the first one here in Exodus chapter 7. But before we read about the plague, there's an interesting note that God puts in His Word, verse 14 there. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Now we've talked about this and we'll continue to talk about this. You see at times, uh, Pharaoh's hard heart is mentioned as just being a hard heart. We see at other times, Pharaoh's hard heart is mentioned as he is hardening his own heart. We see at other times that God is the one hardening his heart. But something we need to make sure we see in all three of those situations is what does that mean? When we look at the text in the Hebrew, literally what is being said here is Pharaoh's heart was heavy. Now if I were to say to you today that someone had a heavy heart, that my heart was heavy or so-and-so's heart was heavy, how would you respond to that? You would take that to mean that they were burdened. You might take that to mean that they were discouraged or they were depressed or they would sad. They were sad. That's how we talk about a heavy heart today. But that is not how the ancient Egyptians viewed a heavy heart. The ancient Egyptians believed that when you died, you went to the underworld and you faced judgment. They believed that in judgment, there was a set of scales. And on that set of scales, on one side was a feather that represented truth and righteousness, And on the other side, your heart would be placed. If your heart outweighed that feather, it was believed that you had a wicked heart and that because of the wickedness of your heart, you deserve to be punished and annihilated in the underworld. But if you had a pure heart, a good heart, then your heart would be lighter than that feather of truth and righteousness. Then you would go to spend eternity with the Egyptian gods. And so in the way that God is addressing Pharaoh to Moses, God is already indicating, based on the Egyptians' own belief, that Pharaoh stands condemned. That Pharaoh is a wicked man. That Pharaoh has a heavy heart. 
And Pharaoh deserves condemnation. He reminds Moses of this often, and he reminds him of it as this first plague comes about. And so he tells Moses, he has a heavy heart, he refuses to let the people go, and so now the first plague will come, and he tells Moses what to do. He says, Moses, I want you to go in the morning as Pharaoh is going down to the water. And that water we will see is the water of the Nile River. And we've already talked about the Nile River and how central that was in ancient Egypt. It was considered to be the source of so many things, really the source of life. Now that's where they would go to get water, the Egyptians, to water their gardens. That's where they would go uh, to get water for their own nourishment. That's where they would go uh, to get anything they needed to grow because the water was the source of life. But we also know that the water carried a very strong foundation in the Egyptians' belief system. The Egyptians worshipped about 80 false gods, and many of these false gods were associated with the Nile River. And so, for example, there was the god Osiris. Osiris was a chief Egyptian god, and he was believed to reign over the Nile. In fact, the Egyptians believed that the Nile River was actually the bloodstream of this false god. There were false gods like Kanum, who was considered to be a guardian of all the sources coming into the Nile, all the tributaries and all the rivers and all the canals coming into it. And there was the false god I've mentioned before, Hapi. Hapi was believed to be the spirit of the Nile, and they would make sacrifices to Hapi. And so we've talked already about how in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, as you see, the wickedness of Pharaoh over the people, the Hebrews, he demands that the Hebrew newborn males be thrown into the Nile. That would have been an act of worship, an act of sacrifice for the Egyptians. They would have been offering these kids to the Egyptian god, Hopi. And then when you look around that surrounding region in Upper Egypt, there was Hapimon and Turet, who were also considered to be Nile gods. And so it's important to understand that the role that this plays in ancient Egypt, because there is great worship taking place at the Nile, we don't know from the text why it is that Pharaoh was going down to the river. He could have been going to bathe. He could have been going for transportation to go to a ship to check on something. But given the context of what we learn about ancient Egypt and all the sacrifices and false religion tied to the Nile, that there's also a good possibility that Pharaoh in that morning could have been going down to the Nile to offer a sacrifice to one of these false gods. And I tend to lean that way, especially considering what God is about to do. Because the plagues are not just a judgment on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians. The plagues are a judgment on these false gods. So the Egyptians might know who the one true God is. And so, as, they go down to, as he goes down to the river, God tells Moses, uh, this is what's going to happen so that he might know that I'm the Lord. So again, that's, that's what's at question here. Pharaoh said, who is this God? Who is the Lord? God says, I'm going to tell you who I am. You're going to know that I'm the Lord because I'm going to turn the Nile to blood. He tells him the fish in the Nile are going to die. That the water itself, the river, is going to stink. And that this is going to affect all the Egyptians. Now a question that might come to mind, a question that's come to my mind as I've studied this text is, what about the Hebrews? <laughs> How were the Hebrews affected by this? And God doesn't really specifically outline this in His Word, at least in this text. 
But I believe that, that the Hebrews were protected from this, that God was providing for his people because specifically his judgment here is against the Pharaoh, against the Egyptians, against these false gods. And they're going to suffer. Because as we read in this text, verse 19, all the rivers, canals, ponds of water, even vessels of wood or stone that would house water, all of this water is going to be turned to blood. This is going to affect every Egyptian. This is judgment against all the Egyptians. And that's important for us to see. God isn't just judging Pharaoh here. He's judging the people of Egypt. Which brings us to, this, that, to our second point in the outline there. The Lord judges those who oppress His people. The Lord judges those who oppress His people. And so we see here that God is bringing judgment not just on Pharaoh, but on all the Egyptians because the Egyptians have oppressed the people of God. So in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh orders that the firstborn Hebrew males be sacrificed to the river. But if you go back and read Exodus 1, he orders the Egyptians to sacrifice these children. So it is the Egyptians who will carry out this order. It is the Egyptians who will murder the Hebrew children. We see then in Exodus chapter 2, as Moses goes out to inquire among his people, he sees an Egyptian beating the Hebrew slave, and this leads him then to slay the Egyptian. It's not just Pharaoh who has the blood of the Hebrews on his hands. This lies on all of the Egyptians. Therefore, God is going to bring judgment on all of them. And so, Moses and Aaron go out, the water is struck, and just as God says, the water turns to blood. The fish die. The water stinks. And then we read in verses 20 and 21 that actually the Egyptians couldn't drink anything coming out of the Nile because the stench and because it was blood. This meant that the Egyptians were cut off from the source of life. And this is a big deal. And we need to consider this because we live in a very different context today. I'm guessing that most of us did not wake up this morning worried about where we were going to find water for our family. In fact, you probably didn't think anything about water and how you would get it. You just went over to the sink and you turned on the nozzle, the faucet, and lo and behold, water came out. You probably, most of us, didn't worry too much about food. You went to your pantry or your refrigerator and you opened it up and there's the food, there's the groceries that you bought. In fact, for so many of us, we have so many groceries, so much food that we lose track of what expires when and we end up throwing away food that we bought. We live in a time and a land of plenty, but we also live in a very different environment when it comes to water. And so it's helpful for us to consider what things must have been like in ancient Egypt. And that there are still places today that live like they lived in ancient Egypt. For example, I've shared several times about the opportunities I've had to go to West Africa. In the area of West Africa that I've been to, it's one of the most impoverished nations in the world. It lacks just basic resources that so many of us have. And what you find when you travel throughout West Africa is that water is life. And so just on this last trip back in February when Chris Coulter and I went, we would go from village to village seeking to minister, share the gospel, and also just find out what some practical needs were. And in every one of those villages, the greatest need they had physically was for water. And so we would go into a village that was out in the middle of the desert. You couldn't see water or the river or anything like that for miles. And you would find ginormous holes in the ground where they would hand dig further and further and further into the earth 
until they would finally get to water. And then you'd find somebody with a, a small uh, container, something that might look like half of a, a milk jug cut in half. And they'd have some type of rope or twine attached to it, and they would sit there all day long. They'd lower that down into the mud of the earth, and they'd scoop up what they could get, and they'd pull that thing up, and all along, all that water splashing out, and they might have about that much water left. And then when they got it up that well, then they'd go on a hike to the other part of the village or other part of the community where they would find where they were trying to grow something in sub-Saharan Africa, and they would dump that water out on it, and then they'd turn around and walk back and start that process over and over again. All this when it's about 100, 105 degrees, some parts of the year, 120 degrees outside. It makes you appreciate the faucet. It makes you appreciate what we have today. But it also helps you to realize that in cultures like that, water is life. And when the well dries up, the village moves or the village dies. Because without water... They can't survive without water. Their livestock can't survive without water. They can't grow anything in a part of the world where they get two or three rains in a given year. That is the context we have here in ancient Egypt. The waters from the Nile annually would flood up into the fields. The fields were where they would grow their crops. They depended on the water from the Nile. And so when the water in the Nile turns to blood, this is a very very significant event in the life of the Egyptians. Because water was life, and without water, they had no life. God is clearly bringing His judgment on all of the Egyptian people here. And when you step back and consider this in the course of biblical history, you see a bit of irony here. Because remember, it was that very river where the Egyptians would sacrifice the Hebrew children. It was that very river that meant life for the Egyptians and death for the Hebrews. And now what is God doing? God has completely reversed that. Now that very river means death for the Egyptians. And that very river is going to lead to life for the Hebrews. Because this will be the first among ten plagues that God will use to deliver His people out of their slavery and into the promised land. We see here the sovereignty of God at work. We see here his judgment against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians. But there's something else I want us to consider. In point three there in your outline. I want us to consider something we'll see in this and many other parts of Exodus. The other gods cannot save because the Lord alone is the one who saves. What's going to happen as God is bringing judgment on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians is that God is also bringing judgment on these false gods. He is showing the Egyptian people that He alone is the one true God. And He's going to show them this by humiliating these false gods that they serve. Notice what happens here in verse 22. So, the, the water, the Nile, is turned to blood. All this water throughout Egypt is turned to blood. And then we read in verse 22 here, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And so the indication here would be that these magicians, who many of them were, were, were priests of these false gods, uh, sorcerers, practice, practices of dark magic, somehow they had water that wasn't turned to blood yet. We don't know how. But the text indicates they were able to turn that water into blood. Now before we get too impressed by that, I want you to consider something. 
Consider not so much what these magicians of Egypt could do. Consider what they could not do. If you were an Egyptian and this took place, you were an Egyptian and you go to the river and it's turned to blood and now you can't take water to your family, you can't take water to your livestock, you can't water your fields, and you know this means death. What do you desperately need at that point? You need these magicians, you need these false prophets and false priests to these false gods to come out, put their own stick over the river and turn that river back into water. That's what you need. And if there's power in these Egyptian gods, that's what they would do. But notice what we see in the text. They don't do that. At best, they're able to mimic or imitate something that God does here. But they're not able to relieve the judgment that's on the Egyptian people. In fact, when you consider it, them turning whatever water was left into blood means they're a part of bringing further judgment on the Egyptian people. That's because these gods could not save these people. In fact, as we read the text there, it tells us in verse 24 that all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink. And so their gods could not help them. Their Pharaoh could not help them. They were left to fend for themselves, to hand dig wells along that river in hopes of finding water that they could still drink. So what does this mean for us today? Well, I think the big picture here applies to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what's happening? What's the big picture? The big picture is to the Egyptians, water, the Nile meant life, and now God has brought judgment, and now this water will mean death. And the only way they can live is for them to get water that will help them live. We might make a reference here to living water, and that's exactly the reference we see in the New Testament. If you will, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus teaching about water. And we see Jesus using water to make a much bigger point about eternal life. If you're not familiar with John chapter 4, this comes at a point in Jesus' ministry where uh, He is resting by a well, His disciples are not with Him, and, and a woman who has a very immoral past. In fact, her, her present is very immoral as well. Uh, she is very sinful. Uh, she would be regarded as an outcast in the culture there. And no good Jewish male would acknowledge her, look at her, or speak to her. She shows up at this well to get water. Why? Because water's life. You, you need water to live. But notice what Jesus says to her as He begins to interact with her about the Gospel and about her deeper need in life and her need for something beyond water that will not satisfy. She needs living water speaking of the Gospel and of Himself. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Now, that's not hard for us to understand. You think about a day when you've been really thirsty. When you're just, we might call it, dying of thirst. And you get a beverage, you get something to drink, and you drink that, and it's so satisfying, and it feels so good, you, you have quenched that thirst. Does that mean you're never going to drink again? No. In fact, maybe within hours of that, you're going to start drinking again. Maybe within days of that, you're going to experience thirst again. And you're going to keep going through this cycle for the rest of your life on this earth of being thirsty and of being hungry. You think about what your 
best meal is, what, what the meal you long for, maybe you get it for an anniversary or your birthday, you, you think about your favorite meal that exists. These are great things to think about at 11.45 on a Sunday. Just think about it. Think about how hungry you are right now. And you go to wherever you're going to go and you eat whatever you're going to eat and you get to that point where you feel like they're going to have to roll you out of there. And you make a statement somewhere along the lines of, oh, I don't think I can ever eat again. Really? We're going to be back next Sunday. In fact, you're going, to, you're going to face that hunger a lot sooner than next Sunday, aren't you? You might have had a lunch like that one day. Oh, I'll never eat again. And by dinner, you're right over top of that plate, aren't you? Because these are cycles. Because there is no food that exists on this planet that you can eat a meal of and never hunger again. There is no beverage that exists on this planet that you can drink of and never be thirsty again. But Jesus is pointing to this woman and pointing to us and say, you are thirsting and you are hungering for a reason. These are gifts from God. These are reminders to us that this world is not our home. These are reminders to us that we should hunger and we should thirst for something that can truly satisfy us. And that the things of this world, whether they be meals or beverages or relationships or jobs or bank accounts or whatever they might be, they will not satisfy you. Jesus then says clearly to this woman as He tells her that this water will not fill her, He says, verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, they will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And those of you today who are followers of Christ, you know this well. You know this spring. Because this is what it means to have a relationship with God through repentance and faith and trusting in His Son. It means that rather than trusting in the endless cycle of our works, we trust in the finished work of Jesus. Rather than trusting in our best efforts, which eventually will fail, we trust in the truly perfect effort of Jesus, which did not fail. And that means that when we come to the Lord's table together, we come with an understanding that this is not about getting a little cup of juice and a little cracker and somehow thinking that's going to fill us. This is a reminder to us that we should be longing for something greater. This is a reminder to us of what Jesus says in His Word. That one day for those who are in Christ, we're going to be at a banquet table and a new heaven and a new earth. And among the many other things we read about that, we learn from the Scripture that we're never going to hunger and we're never going to thirst again because we will be filled with the righteousness of Christ. And when we take this meal, we are not meant to be physically filled, but we are meant to be spiritually reminded of what Christ has done for us. And when we look back on ancient Egypt, we're to be reminded that that water turned to blood and that blood stood as condemnation on those Egyptians. But through the blood of Christ, we can have freedom from condemnation as followers of Jesus. His blood does not condemn those in Him. His blood is what it is that frees us. And so in a moment, we're going to come to this table together as a reminder of these things, of what Christ has offered us. But before we do, as we're speaking about this, this judgment that God brings on those who oppose Him, I want us to consider what God's Word says 
about the Lord's table and how it can bring judgment on us. Now we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26, as we participate in the Lord's Supper together. But let me start by reading to you what it says in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now this is what God's Word is saying. The Lord's Supper is not just meant for perfect people. Okay? So, so if this is just for perfect people who've got it all together and all figured out, then let's just wrap it up right now. Because <laughs> none of you are there. I, I'm not there. But what the Lord's Supper is for is for people who will place their trust and faith in a perfect Savior. Who will trust in His perfection, will trust in His righteousness, not in our own works. The Lord's Supper is not for those of us who believe, if I try hard enough, I'll get to heaven. The Lord's Supper is for those of us who confess Jesus Christ has already accomplished what is needed for me to get to heaven and I must repent of my sin and place my faith in Him. And if that is where you are today, if you have turned from sin and you have confessed Christ as Lord, then this is for you and we invite you to participate in it with us. But there is a word of warning and I just read it to us. Don't take this cup and don't take this bread if you sit there defiant of God and unwilling to repent of your sin. If there is an area of your life that the Lord has made clear through His Word, His people, His Spirit, that you are in unrepentant sin, you know it is sin, you know the Lord says not to do it, but you are unwilling to repent, then friends, you are bringing judgment on yourself by taking this cup and taking this bread. The blood that you'll be identified with then is the blood of the Nile that brought judgment on the Egyptians, not the blood of Christ that brings freedom from condemnation. But the good news is, if that is where you sit this morning, you can repent and you can confess. And even as we are preparing these elements to distribute them to you, you can go to the Lord in a spirit of confession and you can repent. Again, this isn't for people who are perfect. It's for those of us who are trusting in Christ who is perfect.